You are now listening to the Charity Church Podcast. When I was growing up, my dad um, taught me a lot of things. I talk, told you about him teaching me how to mow the grass, you know, with the push mower. But one of the, some of the greatest memories that I have um, growing up are with me, my dad, and my brother um, hunting. And from the time that we were old enough to carry a gun responsibly, um, he was teaching us. You know, we would carry empty guns through the woods, and he was teaching us how to point the barrel. I've got a little bit of a ring in my voice. Um, that teaches us how to carry it with the, the uh, barrel pointed in the right way before he'd ever put a, a bullet in it, you know, or a shell. But one of the things that, that he taught us down in Louisiana where I grew up, we squirrel hunted, all right? And so we'd kill those little tree rats and grandma would make squirrel dumplings, all right? And so we'd go out. So when I was 10 years old, I remember my dad uh, took me out squirrel hunting one morning. I'd just gotten this 22 rifle. It was a 22 rifle that his dad had given him and he had given me. I might've been a little bit older than I might've been 11. Um, but he gave me that 22 rifle and he, we were out hunting and he sat me down beside a tree. It was bone chilling cold out there right next to the creek. And he says, I'm gonna go. And he was deer hunting. So he walked on over to his deer stand. He said, you sit right here. And if you see a squirrel, you shoot it. And so, you know, you're sitting there, you're cold, you're bored, you're on your cell phone. No, it wasn't any cell phones back then. Um, we were, I'm sitting there. All of a sudden I see a squirrel jump in the tree. And so I get that scope up and I shoot at that thing. And I shoot at that thing. And I shoot at that thing. I shot 10 times at that squirrel. And he finally fell out of the tree. It was a miracle. He had 10 bullet holes in him. I'm kidding. He had probably one. But he fell down out of the tree, and I went to go look for that thing. I couldn't find it anywhere. And I was just walking around because, you know, it looks so far away when he's up in the tree. And, and so I'm starting to look, and all of a sudden, you know how I found him? My dad was kneeling down beside it, waiting on me. And, and I just, I'll never forget that vivid memory. I was shaking. You know, my nerves had gotten so hyped up. And so, you know, he taught me how to squirrel hunt. He taught me how to deer hunt. He taught me so much. And there are, there are lasting things that my, my dad taught me that I'll never forget. And even I passed those off to my son and taught him how to, how to deer hunt. We didn't so much squirrel hunt because, you know, who wants to eat a tree rat? Uh, but we, we did do some of that as well. But, but we did that. And you, as we enter into the holiday season, you've got some traditions and some things that, that have been passed down to you from previous generations, right? Maybe you've got a, a particular recipe that every Thanksgiving you make that. Uh, you cook your turkey a certain way and, and you make these recipes and as you get into Christmas, you have certain traditions and things that were passed off to you from a previous generation, things that you hold dear that you try to pass off to the next generation as well. And in the meantime, you try to establish your own kind of traditions that you pass off to your children. And so what we know is that we have a tendency to pass off or teach things that are important to us and things that we would like to pass on to the next generation. And we could look at that as our legacy, it kind of our legacy, the things that we pass off to the next generation. You could put it this way. A legacy is simply what we remember about a person. I do quite a few funerals, more than I really ever want to. And when you, when you do a funeral and you stand over uh, the congregation, over a body or over ashes or whatever the case may be, the person lying there, the person that you are memorializing, you are doing that based upon the legacy. And sometimes you can tell 
by the family what kind of legacy that person leaves behind. There may be laughter, uh, you know, joyous memories. There may be a lot of sadness just because of the loss of someone that they love. But it's what you remember about a person. And I do realize this, that something is gonna be said about you tomorrow that is a result of what you do today. People are gonna say things about you tomorrow based upon the way that you live your life today, based upon your attitude, based upon your actions, based upon the way you live your life. Someone is going to say something about you tomorrow based upon the way you live today. I've got these two jars over here, and several years ago, I heard a message from a guy named Reggie Joyner, and Reggie Joyner used this illustration, and it was just so impactful for me, and I've never forgotten it. And what this is, this jar is full of gumballs, and there's 936 gumballs. There's 936 gumballs in this. And what that represents is from the time that your child is born until the time they leave home, this is the number of weeks estimated that you have with them. You have 936 weeks with your children. Listen, if you have a nine-year-old, they are halfway there. If you have a nine-year-old, they are halfway to graduation. At nine years old, you have about 312 more weeks before they get their driver's license. And we know what happens when they get their driver's license. You know, it's just, it just changes life. You, and at the time they get their driver's license, you have four more summer vacations with them. And then they're off. And then you'd be trying to always draw them back in for summer vacations and things like that. Uh, sometimes they show up, you know, when you don't want them to. But, but, but that, it's just such a great visualization. And occasionally, if we will just stop occasionally and count our weeks, we will tend to make our weeks count a little more. So if you have a newborn child, go get you a, a jar. I bought this at Walmart. Uh, <laughs> I found it at Walmart, among a lot of other things. Um, and, and, and the gumballs I got there too. I was gonna use marbles, but I couldn't find that many marbles. But just go get you one of these. Set it up on your mantle. Set it around your house somewhere. And every week, just take one out and chew it. <laughs> by the time you get out of the end, they're gonna be so stale. Probably tastes the same as the first one though, actually, if you really go by gumballs. Um, but just go get you one. And every week, empty one out. And you count, because if you will stop occasionally and count your weeks, you will tend to make your weeks Count, because here's the thing. When you see how much time you have left, you tend to get serious about the time you have now. And you think about those little kids that you've got, you know, I've got grandkids now and my kids are grown and Friday we were in here kind of going through the service and my son Lucas, he's, he's got his two-year-old son Elias, my grandson, and he's all over the place. I mean, running all over the stage, punching every button on every light. He's holding a microphone. Sean's up here singing. Elias is walking around with a microphone, eating it, slobbering all over it. It's, 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 it's Tom's mic, so don't tell him. And, and he's singing along with him. And I'm just like, you know, as, as busy as a little two-year-old is, and sometimes they misbehave, and they're just more than you seem like you can handle, they are only two for a short period of time. This is the only time in their life you get to enjoy them as a two-year-old, to which some of you would go, thank you, Lord. But enjoy that energy. And I was just thinking about the message and watching him go all over this stage going, man, he is so, he's at a place in his life right now that he is a lot you know, to, to manage and to take care of and look after because he's constantly into something. But my goodness, just embrace 
this moment because if you will just see how much time you have left, you will get serious about the time you have now. He's absorbing so much. And the time you have now is the only time that you have at that point in their life to nurture them and to shape their faith and to establish a legacy of faith in their lives. We're gonna look at a passage today. And I, I was reading through the Bible. I'm reading through the Bible in a year. And when I came across this passage, there was a verse in this passage that caused me to just stop. I'm not even sure that I finished my reading that day because it was just so heavy on me. It was one of those things where I was like, I, I, I've got to preach a series on that. And so I kind of figured out where I was going to put that down the road. And, 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 and here we are today in, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10. There's a statement made here that, is just, that we all should just take a moment and just ponder and think about the weight of it. Here's what is written there. And all that generation, we'll talk about that generation in a few minutes, also were gathered to their fathers, meaning they died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And when you think about that, that is a heavy, heavy legacy that this generation left for this generation. A generation rose up who did not know the Lord and they did not know the work that the Lord had done for Israel. And there's a question that we ask around here a lot. And when I look at some of our senior adults and some of our older adults, I look at you and go, you've embraced this. You've embraced this question because we ask this question, what is the faith of the next generation worth? What is the faith of the next generation worth? What sacrifices am I willing to put aside? What preferences am I willing to deny in order to see this next generation who's coming along behind us stay in the faith and to stay in love with the church? What is the faith of the next generation worth to which we would say it is worth everything? It is worth everything. We have a responsibility to the generation that's coming along behind us. My parents' generation had an obligation to my generation. I have had an obligation to my children's generation, and they, along with the next, the two generations prior, all have an obligation and a responsibility toward the faith of the upcoming generation. So it is worth everything. Because what the next generation will know and do is dependent upon the now generation teaching them and showing them. How will we demonstrate our faith to the, to the, to the next generation that's coming along behind us? When you look around our auditorium and you look at people that are serving around here, we embrace the next generation serving. You see a lot of cameras around this place and look at what most of them are. They're teenagers. And we love that. If we can put them in service, we want that we believe their their faith is worth everything around here. I love seeing people like Breezy up here leading us in worship. The next generation coming along, standing beside Ann who has done a phenomenal job help leading us in worship for many many years. And then you see Caleb back there who's on, or he was over here this week, playing a guitar this week. Last week he was playing the bass. I asked him, I said, are you gonna be playing the trumpet next week? 
I mean, he's just moving. And I love to see the next generation coming along because the, the next generation, what they know and do is based upon how we teach them and how we show them that it is worth everything to us. We're gonna look at this passage a little bit deeper. And what has happened, if you know the history of Israel, you've got a generation that started off with Moses. They were in Egypt, they were in captivity, they were slaves. God rose Moses up. He said, you're gonna deliver my people out of Israel, I mean, out of Egypt. You're gonna go to a land that is the land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's the promised land. And so he comes along, raises up this leader, leads them across the Red Sea. They get into the wilderness and things are tough. I mean, you gotta realize, they had been in Egypt. God had not really dealt with them personally for 400 years or so. And so now, all of a sudden, God is reestablishing this relationship with them. So they get into the wilderness, and they start murmuring and complaining. Two years in, they were ready to hang it up and go back to Egypt. And there's a passage in Numbers chapter 14 where we read about the grumbling and complaining. Moses had sent some spies into the land of Israel. And all of those 12 spies came back. And you remember, if, you, if, you, you know, if you've been in church for any period of time, there were 10 of them came back with a bad report. They came back and they said, listen, the giants are too many. There is no way that we're ever going to take that land. There's no way we can beat them. But there were two spies that came back, Caleb and Joshua. And when they came back, you know what they said? Let me just tell you something. It is a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And those grapes over there are enormous. They are, it is a land that we want to conquer. And because of the, the 10 spies that gave a bad report, you know what happened to them? They were killed. God said, I'm doing away with these grumblers and these complainers, these negative people. Aren't you glad God doesn't deal with us like that? Half of us would, be, would have been dead last week, you know, me included. Um, but, but, but God doesn't deal, he's not dealing with that anymore. He's like, I'm going to take this generation, Caleb and Joshua, and I am going to bless them. This generation that's the grumblers and complainers, they are not going to get to see the promised land. As a matter of fact, they're going to die off before I put my people in there. So this was two years in that this conversation took place. So for 38 more years, the children of Israel wandered around in the wilderness until that generation had died off. And then all of a sudden, Joshua, leading Israel, gets to lead them across the Jordan River. And that's where we pick up the story. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from, went up from Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was the place where they had crossed the Jordan River, okay? So before they went into the promised land, Moses had died. God opened up the, the waters of the Jordan River. They crossed over, and as they crossed over, they created a memorial at that place, a 12-stone memorial. So every tribe had their rock, and they put that there, and it was enormous. It was a big memorial so that they could look back, and as they saw that memorial back there, they could tell the generations behind them of the goodness and the greatness and the miracle-working God that they served and how much God loved them and wanted to have a relationship with them. So that 12-stone memorial was here at Gilgal. So the angel of the Lord, which was probably a theophany of Jesus showing up, went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt, reminder, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give you to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
God says, I'm not going to, I promised you I'd bring you into this land, and I did it. I'm not going to break my end of the deal. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all the other uh, pagan worshiping um, tribes there. You shall make no, inha- make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done. Now, what they did, God had told them, go into the land, and I want you to run them out. I want you to destroy the Canaanites, and every altar they have, you utterly destroy it. Destroy every remnant of those people. But the Israelites didn't do that. They went in, and they kept stuff. They kept stuff that were valuable, and as a matter of fact, they took the Canaanites and the other inhabitants of the land, and they began to make them slaves. So they brought them into their homes, actually brought them into their homes and let them live among them. And so they did not obey. And so what God says, you have not obeyed. And he asked this question, why have you done this? Why have you done this thing? And that question, the purpose of that question was for them to contemplate their disobedience. And so it must have worked. And so in verse three, it says, so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. So any divine hope you wanted to utterly wipe out the people there, that's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, you're going to have to deal with them as you go into and stay in and remain in the promised land. Skip down to verse 7, and the people served the Lord. They remembered the things. This was a good speech that God had given them. And the, Lord, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that God, that the Lord had done for Israel. So after this, their memory of God's faithfulness had been kind of stirred back up, and, they, and it motivated them to remain obedient to God as they move forward in this. But then we get back down to verse 10, because this generation, as they remembered what God had done, says they became obedient. But in that, something took place because all that generation... This is the, there was Moses and that generation, he had to kill them off. And then Joshua's generation, they went through that disobedience, but they kind of got back on track. And now we got a third generation, that that second generation, all they were gathered to their fathers or they died. And there arose that third generation or another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so my prayer, my desire is that we would never, ever, ever neglect the faith of the next generation. And so today, no matter if you have children or not, you still have an obligation to the next generation. We all, no matter if you have children or grandchildren or not, if you're a part of the body of Christ, you have a level of obligation for the generation and their faith. And how will we hand off our baton of faith. Because there's a generation that we have witnessed the goodness of God. We have been there. We have seen how God has carried us through. And we're going to talk about some of that. So my question today is this, how do we leave a godly legacy for future generations? How do we hand off the baton of faith faithfully? How do we leave that legacy? Got three things for you. Number one, teach and demonstrate God's love. Teach and demonstrate God's love. Hey, there was a time that Moses was really, really good at this. If you jump over to Deuteronomy chapter six, here's what we learn when when the the, uh, 
Moses wrote this for us. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the Shema. This is something that they woke up every day and they spoke this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It goes on, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Meaning everything that you are should demonstrate your love to God. Everything that you have, it's, it's your, your disposition, your emotion, your intellect, everything that you have should demonstrate to the next generation that you love God. Because demonstrate, demonstrate inward love for God through our outward obedience to God. Because you demonstrate God's love by the way you love. I mean, when you have your kids and they're, they're infants, I mean, it's so easy to love an infant, right? I mean, every infant that comes in this building, we just want to hold them and snuggle them and, and just tell them, oh, this is just, it's so easy to love them because they only cry for two reasons. They're hungry or they need their diaper changed. That's it. You fix those two things, they're usually pretty good. They're pretty good for a while. But then they become the little toddler that you're trying to keep them out of everything. But listen, even as they grow in there, you still demonstrate your love for them by providing all that they need and through listening to everything that they go through as they get older and they can talk. And then they get to be that two-year-old and you're just trying to figure out why they're in such a bad mood and you're trying to decipher those things because emotions are starting to work, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But we just... We just, over the time that our kids grow up, we have to consistently demonstrate and show them love. You know how you show your teenager that you love them? Over time. You're always there for them. No matter what they go through, you're always there for them. You never draw a line in the sand and say, you do this or else. You never do that. You just lovingly demonstrate that you love them over time. But what happens is, we kind of get to a place instead of saying, I love you because that you're so great and so beautiful and so smart and just because God created you fearfully and wonderfully and I love you because that, we start to say, I love you, but I love you, but right now you're not very lovable. I love you, but, and we kind of tend to get into that little mode of life where you got, I love you, but I love you, but instead of just saying, hey, I love you because I just love you because, and you fill in the blank and you demonstrate your inward love for God by your outward obedience to God, and you demonstrate your love for your kids over time, consistently over time. So number one, you teach and demonstrate God's love. Number two, you make your words count. You make your words count. You get back over there in Deuteronomy chapter six. Here's the way Moses put it for us. He says, you shall teach them laws of the Lord, the, the, the things of God. You shall teach them diligently, to your children, and you'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Another thing that, that I heard uh, this passage spoken on several years ago by Reggie Joyner, who just is a genius when it comes to the faith of the next generation, and one of the things that he talked about is these, three, these four words right here. And he says, when you sit in your house, you know, when my kids were growing up, one of the greatest times that we had that I can remember, they may tell you something differently, but one of the greatest times that I had was around the dinner table. Now, we were the family that everybody sat at the table at dinner. Nobody took their plate to the living room to watch TV. They certainly didn't take their plates to their bedroom to watch TV or whatever. They were, we were all at the table. And the reason for that 
is there were such good conversations around processing the day. They got to hear what was going on with us. We got to hear what was going on with them. We laughed at the table. We had fun at the table. Sometimes it was just, let's, let's just eat and let's be done with it. But, but a lot of times there was great conversations when we would sit around the house, particularly at the dinner table. And then he says, as you walk by the way. Now, we don't walk by the way very often, right? We don't hardly walk anywhere anymore. We drive by the way. And so even when my kids were young, I would always just, if I had an errand to run or if I had somewhere I had, could go, was going and I needed somebody, I could take somebody with me, I would grab one of the kids and say, hey, ride with me wherever. And it was in one of those trips, whenever, I, Tracy reminded me after the early service, it was Lacey, our middle daughter, it was her birthday, which is also Tracy's spiritual birthday, January the 11th. And so it was on their day, they were, Lacey was having a sleepover. And so I needed to go to the store, go do something, get out of the house. And I said, Luke, come on and go with me. So Luke, he was, I don't know how old he was at the time, five or six years old, um, but he gets in the car with me or in the truck, my old Ford truck, and we're driving down the road. And in that conversation, Luke prayed to receive Christ. It was in the car with me. We started talking about faith or whatever it was. I can't remember how it even how it got started, but it was in there. Now he wasn't in a seatbelt. I remember he was laying on the seat. He had his head in my lap, as a matter of fact. And we were talking as we were driving by the way, and that's where the conversation took place. So never neglect when you are walking or driving by the way. These are places for great conversations in a car, side by side, when you're with your children. And then he says, when you lie down. Man, bedtime prayers, aren't those some of the greatest conversations you have with your kids? They're the most tender, heartfelt conversations. The thing that they will open up about when they're laying in the bed with their head on their pillow and you're knelt down beside their bed, talking to them, having this conversation, they will divulge to you things that are on their head. What are we gonna pray about tonight? And a list probably gets long occasionally, right? And it gets kind of weird. We're praying about a, dirt, a bird or a dog or a cat, whatever's on their mind, but you're just hearing their little hearts and you're making your words count by the way you're building their faith. And then finally, he says, and when you rise up, first thing in the morning when your kids hit the floor, we know that it sets the mood many times for the day. How do you set the tone for the day early in the morning? We didn't always get that right, but I do remember times when, when my kids were older and they were getting, they had their license, and they were going off to school and Lacey occasionally would have these emotional meltdowns and, and I'd say, what's going on, Lacey? Early in the morning, she'd go, I got this big test, I don't feel prepared for it. I'd say, well, hey, let's just pray about it. So just before she'd walk out the door, I'd put my arm around her and we would have prayer just before she left to go to school. And so it's when you rise up, parents, your words matter and your words count and so make them count and use the time that you have wisely, because the weeks are numbered. You only have a certain number of weeks with them. And as they go through the different phases of life, there are certain things that your 13-year-old daughter needs to hear from you and needs from you when it comes to words, when it comes to time. Your 13-year-old daughter, your 16-year-old son, your eight-year-old boy, all of them, they need something particular in that time. And as you ride, as you sit around your house, as you walk by the way or drive by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, make your words count. Moses goes on and he says, and you shall bind them as a sign, more words on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, phylacteries that they would wear. It's more words. 
And he says, you will write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's the word of God. Your words are shaping how your kids see God and how your kids see other people. Let me just tell you this. When it comes to these things, our student ministry and our kids' ministry does an excellent job imparting the truths of God's word. And as a matter of fact, one of their desires is to equip parents to do the same and to follow up with what it is that they've been teaching. We're gonna go a little long today. I just looked at the clock. It's gonna be a little longer, um, so bear with me. But on Wednesday nights, when we have midweek, our middle school pastor, which is Fisher Fur, and our high school fa- uh, pastor, uh, Grant Ketron, they create every single week a thing called a parent queue, and they email that out to you every single week. I get the email. I look at the email, and they have done a phenomenal job crafting their message just for your kids, but also crafting questions for you to follow up with them on. So open that email and use those questions to follow up with a discussion. Every Sunday morning, when Jacob, our kid's pastor, when he's over there and he brings the message to your kids, he also creates a take-home sheet of paper for you to take home and follow up with your conversation about what they've been teaching them over all morning. So I asked Jacob, I said, how many do you print off? He says, I print off 10. I usually have several left over. So I'm just telling you, he printed extras today and they better all be gone. I'm kidding, not really. Take home those things so that you can follow up and have conversations because you are the greatest voice in their life, parents, grandparents. And so number one, teach and demonstrate God's love. Number two, make your words count. Number three, tell stories of God's faithfulness. Tell your kids' story of God's faithfulness because why? Stories have a lasting impact on kids' lives. Man, our kids love, our grandkids love to hear us tell stories. I make up stories, okay? We have weird monkeys, we make up stories. They do all kinds of crazy stuff. Tracy is one of the best storytellers. She'll have our grandkids over, she'll start telling them stories about when she was growing up and when her sister and brother were growing up. And those kids just, they love to hear those stories. Stories have such a powerful, powerful impact on your kid's life. Here's what Moses said about it. Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. The more you tell a story, the more you remember the words, right? The more you remember the stories. The more you tell them, the more you remember. And here's how he followed up with that. He says, make them known to your children and your children's children. Make those stories known. You tell the stories of God's faithfulness. Man, your kids love to hear them. Your grandkids love to hear them. Even if they've heard them 100 times and they roll their eyes at you, they still like to hear them. I know they do. Dad, I've heard that story 100 times. You're gonna hear it again because you need to hear it again. I've heard that story so many times. I know, but you need to hear it again. You need to hear how faithful God has been and how faithful God will be. They need to know God's big story and they need to know how they fit into God's story. And we as parents and as grandparents and anybody, whether you're a grandparent or a parent, anybody who has some voice into the next generation has a responsibility to tell those stories. Because here's the thing, parents, you are the most influential spiritual voice in your kids' lives. Grant, Fisher, Jacob, myself, we may be able to teach a lot of things, but you are the most influential spiritual voice in the life of your kids 
They are reading between the lines and they are watching your lives and they are listening to your words, whether you think they are or not. And you have a great responsibility and you have great influence, so use it wisely. How you love over time gives worth to your kids. How you use words gives directions to your kids and how you use stories will help give your kids perspective over life. But a lot of parents I hear real quickly, they have some objections, they have hesitations. They'll say, how should we, or why should we, or actually, we should allow them to discover faith on their own. You don't do this with anything else in their lives. Let me just let them discover that they shouldn't walk out in front of the car. Let me just let them discover that they shouldn't use drugs. Let me just let them discover how to work, how math works. Let me just let them discover how science works. You don't use this logic with anything else in life. Why would you let the greatest thing that they ever need to hang on to, and that is faith, why would you let them just by happenstance learn about faith? Bring them to church, make them go to student ministry, make them go to kids ministry, because you make them go everywhere else, right? You make them go to ball practice because they made an obligation. You make them go to school because they need to learn. You should make them go to church and be a part of a place that will help mold their faith. And you have a responsibility toward that. So don't use this objection. It just don't hold water. Another one is this, I just don't know enough. Join the crowd. As much as I know, I've got several degrees in Bible and none of them seemed to work when it came to my 16-year-old son, okay? But you know what? I learned as I went. I was the first time raising a 16-year-old boy, but we learned as we went. And my voice in his life, I was a snooping parent. I would nose around their stuff. I tried to find secrets that they had that they would never tell me about because listen, I may not have known enough, but I was going to figure some stuff out as they grew up and as they navigated through these things. Listen, but you as a parent need to study and learn and you need to teach. Study, learn, teach, study, learn, teach, and keep that cycle going. Get into a disciple-making group of your own and then use that information to disciple your own kid. And it doesn't hurt every once in a while just to admit you don't know, and I'll go figure it out. Charles Spurgeon said this, a father's love, a holy life, is a rich legacy for his sons. And we could say a mother's holy life is a rich legacy for her sons or daughters. It all holds water there. Everything, a father's holy life is a rich legacy for his son. And I repeat this, what the next generation will know and do is dependent upon the now generation teaching them and showing them. If you don't demonstrate your faith if you don't demonstrate a love for God and a love for the things of God, the generation coming along behind us, they will not embrace it either. They will not. So we need to make sure that we are living for the now generation to establish faith and to leave a legacy of faith. So as we close out, what is the faith of the next generation worth? And what will you do about it? Let's all stand together. Father, we are so thankful for somebody ahead of us, a grandmother, a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, somebody, an aunt and uncle, somebody who had faith and their faith was so important to them that they made sure they handed it off to the next generation. And we are so thankful that we are recipients of that legacy today. 
And God, is there are dads in here and there are moms in here who feel ill-equipped to pass off and hand off a spiritual legacy. God, my prayer today is that you would enable them and empower them. God, in areas that we have not demonstrated those things well, God, may we get on our faces before you and our knees and just beg for your forgiveness. And that God, we would leave here with more determination than ever that the faith of the next generation will be stronger than our faith. And we will do our part to establish that. So God, do a work in our hearts like only you can. In Christ's name we pray, amen.